young ones. I'm going to tell you what the, the uh, sermon text is going to be about and what the sermon is going to be about, okay? Um, so get us all on the same page here. Uh, there's this poem. It's called Something Missing. It's by Shel Sil- Silverstein. Kids, if you don't know Shel Sil- Silverstein, you need to go get his book. Uh, awesome stories, awesome poems. Okay, this is his poem called Something Missing. I want to see if you can finish it. Okay, ready? I remember I put on my socks. I remember I put on my shoes. I remember I put on my tie that was painted in beautiful purples and blues. I remember I put on my coat to look perfectly grand at the dance. Yet I feel there's something I may have forgot. What is it? What is it? Pants. And then if you've got the poem, you see Shel Silverstein's picture of this guy all dressed up with no pants. Uh, dance party, no pants, that's no good. Okay, uh, I, I, you probably have never made that mistake, but kids, young ones, how good is your memory? Like, uh, can you remember, anyone here remember what they had for breakfast last Tuesday? Go. No? Okay. How about this? What is the earliest, anybody know like the earliest memory that they have in their life? Black, and then light. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, how about this? Do y'all, kids, do y'all remember your dreams? Who here, like, never remembers their dreams? We got some, but we got some, yeah, you're good at remembering your dreams, and they're weird. I can testify Peyton's dreams are weird. Uh, how about this? What kind of things, like, do y'all forget? Yes. Pencil? Yes. They, okay, well, you know what? Good on you. Uh, not to throw anyone under the bus, but my kids, they forget their homework. They forget their lunches. They forget everything. Um, uh, have you ever forgotten anything really, really, really big? One time this past year, we forgot uh, our dog's birthday. And it was like, the, oh, yeah. <laughs> Like gasps in the congregation. <laughs> yeah, and like the kids were devastated. You know who wasn't? The dog. Uh, like, okay. Uh, uh, today, like we forget all kinds of stuff, some, some little, some, some big. Today, we're in the Old Testament book, Young Ones of First Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 7, and we're going to read about how the people of God in Israel, they forgot about God. Like, they forgot God. And it's not just that, like, they forgot about him. They forgot about him, and then they started worshiping other gods. They started worshiping things other than God. And Samuel, who is the last Old Testament judge, think like Samson and Gideon, those guys, those heroes. Uh, Samuel is the last of the judge. And what he does is he reminds Israel in this really awesome way. He reminds Israel of their only true God who has saved them, the only God who can save them, and he calls them back to worship. Now, you know, you know that we always ask at church, like this is what we do every Sunday. We're like, okay, Jesus saved me. Okay, so he did that for me. So what am I supposed to do now? Like we always leave here like asking like, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Okay, I want you to know, young ones, I want you to know that one of the biggest, most important things that you're supposed to do every day with this gospel, you're supposed to remember it. And you're like, really? That's yes. Like, that is huge. That is super important is just remember what Jesus has done for you. 
That's one of the big, like, so what am I supposed to do answers. Like, remember, what do you, and here's a question, like, what do you remember about the gospel of God saving you? Like today, young ones, will you remember that Jesus lived for you and that he died for you in order to save you from sin and from death and the devil? Like, will you remember that he was raised? Will you remember today that Jesus is not dead? He's not in the grave. He is alive. He is raised. He is in heaven right now thinking about you, caring for you, working for you and in you. Like, will you remember he is coming back for you? And will you remember today to love him and to worship him? This is what we're going to see in our text this morning. We've just begun. We've just begun our spring sermon series in the books of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. So let me give you a little context. As we jump into the text here, like where are we in history here? God, and this is, is going to condense some, some things here. God has brought, remember God has brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and he's brought them into the promised land of Canaan. Moses, Joshua, the two great leaders of Israel who, who got them out of Egypt, got them into the promised land, they're gone now. Okay, when Joshua dies, Israel is surrounded by all these enemies. And when Joshua goes, when he dies, Israel stops worshiping God, and they start worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And it doesn't take long before their enemies, the Canaanites, like, start oppressing Israel and start enslaving them. And then Israel like, gets desperate, and they cry out to their God to save them. And because God is gracious, God raises up a hero to save the day. He raises up a judge to save Israel. And it's like, yay, everyone's happy because of what this judge has done. And they're back, and they're worshiping God. But then that judge dies. And then the people turn away from God again. And they worship with the Canaanites again. And then they get oppressed again. And then they cry out to God again. And then God, in uh, grace, raises up another hero judge and he leads them back to God, and then he dies, and the cycle starts over again and again and again. And now we pick up uh, in First and Second Samuel. Last Sunday, we looked at Samson. We're actually in Judges last Sunday. We looked at Samson, the last of the judges of the book of Judges. Now we pick up in our series in First and Second Samuel with Samuel, and he is a judge too. This is 11th century B.C., his ministry, Samuel's ministry, actually overlaps with the end of Samson's ministry, but Samuel is the last of the judges. Uh, just want to also just make mention of, um, very, very grateful, you know, this is, this is a time where you run back to uh, the people who taught you this stuff. My professors just got it, Gordon Hugenberger, uh, Meredith Klein, and, and uh, Rick Lentz, uh, who actually is here with us this morning. Uh, so thankful for Rick, who taught, you taught me everything I know about idolatry, which sounds like a weird accolade to throw on someone. Uh, but uh, so, so thankful for them. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, 
Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as uh, below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So while the judges, while the judges, the faithful leaders of Israel, while the judges go from good to just great, that's the trajectory of the judges, the people go from bad to worse. And so does their situation in the promised land. So the Ark of the Covenant, we read about right there at the beginning of the passage, the Ark of the Covenant, it's that, it's that box that contains the, the two tablets, the, the Ten Commandments, the box that was, it, what it was was God's earthly throne. So it sat in the Holy of Holies and the, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Um, it's God's earthly throne. Really what you're supposed to think of is like, think of God sitting on his throne in heaven and then his legs reaching down to, all the way to earth. Like the ark is really his footstool uh, on earth. So uh, the ark is where God's presence was on earth. Well, Israel has become so idolatrous, so rebellious, so idolatrous, that God allows the ark to be captured by the Philistines. That's what happens right before this passage here. So the, the Philistines capture the ark, and Israel suffers a huge military defeat. <clears throat> and the ark is taken into captivity. And you think, like, you read that, and you think, like, oh, no, like, they got God. But then you read how God can take care of himself. Uh, because this, the, the ark becomes a plague on all the towns of the Philistines, like decimating one city after another. So the Philistines send the ark back to Israel. And that's where we pick up, that's where this picks up, 1 Samuel 7, but Israel still has not learned its lesson. Now what they do is they put God on a shelf. They, they put him away at an arm's distance at a location they think safely, conveniently, far enough away from them so they actually don't have to deal with God. And then it says, verse 2, and all the people lamented after the Lord. For 20 years, it says, for 20 years, Israel knows something is missing in their life. 
Like they lament the felt absence of the Lord. And they do nothing. They don't do anything about it because even though, even though they're lamenting, hear this, even though they're lamenting God's absence, they have at the same time forgotten God. And you ask, how is such a thing possible? Like how can you lament the thing you've forgotten? <clears throat> Tennessee Williams is a, uh, maybe you might read, have read him, remember him, 20th century playwright. He tells the story of Jacob Brodsky, a shy Russian Jew whose father owns a bookstore. And the father wants his son, wants Jacob to go to college, but the only thing Jacob wants in life is to marry his childhood sweetheart, Lila. Well, <clears throat> when his father dies, Jacob marries Lila, his love, and they move into the apartment above the bookstore, and Jacob takes over management of the bookstore. And the life of books fits him perfectly, but it cramps Lila. She wants adventure, and she finds it, she thinks, when she meets an agent who praises her beautiful singing voice and entices her to tour Europe with a vaudeville company. She goes. When she departs, Jacob, devastated, reaches into his pocket and hands her the key to the bookstore. And he says this, you had better keep this because you will want it someday. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can get away from it. You will come back sometime, and I will be waiting. And she kisses him and leaves. Jacob withdraws deep into his bookstore. He speaks little. He does little. Immersed in his book, he waits for his love to return. And 15 years later, at Christmas time, she does. 15 years later, Lila returns. But when, she, when Jacob sees her... He does not recognize the love of his life. Do you want a book, he asks. That he doesn't remember her, undoes her. And then she gathers herself, and she replies, I want a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. And then she tells him a story of, a ch of childhood sweethearts, of a newly married couple who lived in an apartment above a bookstore, of a young, ambitious wife who left to seek a career, who enjoyed great success but could never relinquish the key her husband gave her when they parted. But his face shows no recognition. She realizes that he had lost touch with his heart's desire, that he no longer knew the purpose of his waiting and his grieving. Now, now all he remembers is the waiting and the grieving itself. She says, you remember it. You must remember it. The story of Lila and Jacob. And after a long, bewildered pause, he says, there is something familiar about the story. I think I've read it somewhere. It comes to me that it is something by Tolstoy. She drops the key and flees the shop. And Jacob returns to his reading, unaware that the love he waits for has come and gone. Which is a terrible, sad story. Like, it's awful. Okay, now, it's not, it's not that God is, it's not that God is like Lila. God did not abandon Israel. Israel abandoned God, but now, even though, even though they lament the felt absence of God, they have so completely forgotten their heart's desire. It's actually very, very human to start looking for something and then forget what you're looking for. 
These people forgot about the God who had saved their parents, saved their grandparents, saved their great-grandparents. And you wonder, like, how is that possible? Like, how does one forget God? Like, hadn't their parents, hadn't their grandparents told this new generation, like, about the exodus out of Egypt? Like, being miraculously delivered through all these, like, freaky plagues and being led through the desert by two huge towering columns of smoke and fire. Like, hadn't they heard about the parting of the Red Sea? The giving of the Ten Commandments, the walls of Jericho coming down, all the, the, the impossible battles that Israel had won. Hadn't they heard any of this? Yes, they heard that stuff. So, how does one forget such a God? Well, the, the thing about forgetting is it's not an act of the will. Like, you can't decide to forget something. If you try to forget something, you know this. Like, you'll actually just end up thinking about that thing all the more. You'll never forget about it. You forget stuff you don't really care about. Like, like, like the kids, like, if I forget what I had for breakfast last Tuesday, it's not because I exercised my will to forget. I just don't care. Like, but that's, and you, you know, we say like, okay, yeah, but that's last week's like breakfast, whatever. Like, do we really, do we really forget about big things so easily. So uh, uh, my old professor, Rick Lentz from seminary, would tell us a story about another uh, professor from our seminary years before, uh, the beloved Richard Lovelace. Uh, one morning, professor, professor Lovelace uh, had to travel from Boston down to New York City to teach. And uh, he managed to wrap things up early. So he dashed to the airport, gets a ticket for an earlier flight, makes it back to Boston, phones his wife, surprises her that he has come home early, and could she come and pick him up? And his wife says, what do you mean, what do you mean you're home? I'm home. Like, where are you? Pick you, what do you, pick you up. What do you mean pick you up? And he says, I'm, ba- I'm back home in, in Boston. I, I'm early. Like, I, I'm at the airport. Can you pick me up? And she says, Richard, you drove your car to New York City this morning. This Professor Lovelace was infamous uh, for being the absent-minded professor, like forgetting big and small details. Students would stop him, stop him on the seminary grounds for a quick question or two, and then after like a five-minute conversation, Professor Lovelace would look at them and ask, he'd say, okay, when you stopped me, was I, was I going to the dining hall or was I coming out of the dining hall? I can't remember if I had my lunch. <laughs> These Israel, the Israelites, like... They forgot a big detail, God himself. Such a thing is possible, and it's because they didn't care about God or what he had done. These stories about God saving earlier generations, to them, they're just stories. Their forgetting God is a result of neglect. And we have our own troubles with memory. Uh, when, when we turn, you, know, you think about this, when you turn on the TV, every commercial, every commercial says, your past is inferior and what you got to do, what you need is this new thing. You need this new thing to move forward in life, your new life, to become the new you. Uh, Carl Truman, a church historian, he's also British, which provides him a you know, unique outside perspective. So looking at America, he says, the growing irrelevance of memory and forgetting is built into the history of America itself. He says, think about America first being settled in the wild frontier. The idea was to constantly and consciously push forward into the future and leave the past behind. 
He says the irony is a big part of our past is forgetting our past. But then the danger of forgetting God is that forgetting God doesn't stop at forgetting God. This generation in 1 Samuel 7 moves from forgetfulness to idolatry. They, forget, they forgot God and began to worship the foreign gods among them. And so, our hero judge, Samuel, this is where he steps up, he steps in, and he calls them to turn back to God. And Samuel says, verse 3, to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You forgot God and turned to idols? Lose the idols and remember God. And here's the, the so what for us is, we, you know, we're not so much worried about Asherahs and Baals, but idolatry, Yes. And so you must do some forced self-reflection to discern what are your functional gods that are opposed to your professed God. Like, these, these are some questions that get at some of that idle stuff. Like, what, think, what do you want? What do you crave? What desires do you obey? What are your goals and what are your expectations for today and for this week and for five years from now? Like what, what is it that you fear and what do you think you need? When things are hard, where do you run for comfort? Where do you run for that feeling of security? Like who do you trust? And the flip side of that, like who are your role models? Who do you have to? to please this week and whose opinion of you matters whose approval of you do you need what is the measure of success and what is your measure of failure what preoccupies your thought life and then we're not thinking and you're talking to people what do you mostly talk about when you talk to other people what do you fantasize about how about this? Finish this sentence. If only. What are you committed to? What are you overcommitted to? You have to identify the ungodly masters that occupy positions of authority in your heart. You've got to know what's driving you in order to turn from those idols. And yes, Israel here is worshiping the idol gods of the nations around them, Ashtoreths and the Baals. And you think, like, why are they worshiping? Well, the Ashtoreths are, are the female goddesses of war and love. The Baals were the male counterparts. They're the gods of storm and rain. And so what they're worshiping are these things that they think will give them like security, love, will give them abundance you know, uh, and, and peace. Samuel says, do not give your worship to them. They are false gods. Worship God. And then, and then he gathers Israel for worship. He gathers Israel to a literal worship service of God, the God of Israel, at a place called Mizpah. And you're like, what Mizpah? Okay, Mizpah. Mizpah actually is ideally situated just north of Jerusalem on the main north-south highway. And so the, the point of this, it's in the middle of these central highlands. 
It's very accessible. Everyone can get there for worship. Everyone, it's, it's very accessible to everyone. Everyone, everyone, not just Israel. Because the Philistines see Israel gathering at Mizpah, and they think these subjugated people are rebelling. <laughs> and so out in the open, uh, let's attack and put this rebellion down. So here come the Philistines. I mean, you've got to imagine, Israel is in the middle of a worship service, and they see the Philistine armies coming for them. And out of, out of dread, the people look to their judge, Samuel, and they cry out, save us. And Samuel, as God's hero judge, he intercedes for this idolatrous people, and he prays to God to save Israel. And now, now, okay, who is the real God of war? Who is the real God of love? Who is the real God of the storm? It's not the Ashtoreths. It's not the Baals. It's the God of Israel who shows up. Listen to this, verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. As one Old, commentator, uh, Old, Testament, comment Old Testament commentator puts it, uh, this passage must be played for Tissimo. Uh, what the Philistines and Israelites heard, it was terrible. It was the shattering thunder of God's advent in judgment. This is unique language in Hebrew. Like, uh, this should bring to memory, you know, what they've forgotten, they should now remember. This should bring to memory God showing up in terrible judgment at the fall. What Adam and Eve heard when God showed up, it was frighteningly loud. This is what all Israel heard when God met them at Mount Sinai. That day that dawned with lightnings and thunders, that day when the mountain burned with a fire enveloped in dark clouds, for God came down in fire on the mountain, and the whole mountain quaked, and the people screamed in terrible panic. What Israel and the Philistines are hearing is the advance of God's army. A roaring, crushing sound, and the Philistines are crushed. And all of this is happening simultaneously it says as Samuel offers up a whole burnt offering and this is important this battle and this worship and this specific offering they mirror each other it's not a coincidence they're happening at the same time this is by God's design it, Israel had many different kinds of sacrifices peace offerings sin offerings guilt offerings whole burnt offerings each one each one highlighted different blessings that come with reconciliation with God, like peace, like forgiveness. Okay, this whole burnt offering, this one that Samuel offers, is a whole burnt offering. Whole burnt offerings are about consecrating yourself to God. They're about your, when you do a whole burnt offering, you're saying you're devoting all yourself, everything, all of you, totally sold out. You're devoting all yourself to God. That is what Samuel is doing here. As the Philistines charge their worship service, Samuel the judge intercedes for the people, offers a whole burnt offering, and devotes Israel to God. And here is Israel really, really devoting themselves to God. Here they are relying on God. They're not relying on their idols to save them. They're not running and fleeing to their idols. They're not even relying on themselves to save themselves. They cry out to God to save them. And this is important. Who eats, who eats a part of the sacrifice 
that means something too. Like, like if the people eat the sacrifice, that means one thing. If the priest offers the sacrifice, that means another thing. But this is a whole burnt offering, and it's what it sounds like. The whole animal is burned up. No one eats it. No person. Because God gets all of it. This means God eats it which means God takes on himself the pollution and the punishment that sacrificial offering represented on behalf of those offering up the whole burnt offering, which means the only solution for our sin is for God to eat it. Like, do you, okay, bring those together. Like, do you see how the battle and the worship mirror each other? We have enemies outside of us. We have enemies outside of us that would destroy us. Christian, and we have enemies inside of each of us that would destroy us. So, while God is defeating the Philistine enemy outside his people, he is also defeating the idolatry enemy inside his people. And the so what for us is that this historical battle with the Philistines and this symbolic whole burnt offering sacrifice foreshadows the greater battle and the greater sacrifice for all God's people. And you know what I'm going to say. Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate judge who intercedes for us and fights our enemies for us. It's Jesus who defeats the enemy outside of us. The devil, the physical and spiritual powers of darkness that are against us. It's Jesus who defeats the enemy inside us, our idolatry and sin which leads to death. You need to know a little Hebrew here. The word for burnt offering does not literally mean burning. That's actually just an interpretation. It's a, transla- it's a tradition to translate it that way. It actually means, you translate this literally, to go up. So a burnt offering is a go up offering. An offering in which the whole thing goes up to God. As Jesus goes up on that cross, Jesus is the go up offering. He is the whole burnt offering who in his death swallows up our sin and our death and consecrates us and brings us back to God completely. Now here, 1 Samuel 7, after this victory, Samuel sets up a stone called Ebenezer. We're going to sing a song at the very end. We're going to say that Ebenezer thing. And now you know what Ebenezer, it's a stone of help. It's a monument for remembering God's help and salvation because we forget God's blessings. Now God had provided, God had provided Israel plenty of means to remember like who he was, what he'd done. They had the Levites. They had the priests they had, they had, whose job was to keep telling the people over and over Israel's story so they'd remember to preach uh, the salvation. They had the written word of God. Moses wrote it down. They could hear it read. Their feasts and their sacrifices, they're all big reminders and teaching opportunities. So when we see here that there's a generation that didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, it's obvious that they and their leaders, other than Samuel, had neglected the means of remembering God. There is no silver bullet to being a Christian. There's no big event after big event after big conference. There are only the basic, ordinary routines and disciplines that need to be followed 
in order to keep our memory fresh, in order to remember our God and his salvation, which means we cannot neglect the Bible, we can't neglect prayer, worship, the sacraments, fellowship. And how to put this ordinary stuff into practical practice. Okay, I'm gonna give you one thing. This is not my idea. This is an ancient, very, very old practice. It goes all the way back to the ancient church fathers. It's this discipline at the end of the day, at the end of the day, as your mind, you know where your mind goes at the end of the day, it goes to the next day. Like as your, as your mind goes to the future, at the end of your day, all the things that you have to do tomorrow, stop. Stop and remember the day. Try this. Do this. Make this a habit. For just a, mo- just a few moments each night at the end of the day, practice remembering the day and remembering God in your day. So tonight... Tonight, take a few moments and practice this. How did God provide for you today? How did he love you? When were the moments you clearly forgot him? And when were the moments when he clearly did not forget you? When when was it clear today that the gospel is true? And then remember, remind yourself that whatever happened to you today, you will not perish because he perished for you. Now, in the next chapter, we're not going there, but in the next chapter, these, these, this is important. these repentant Israelites, in the next chapter, they will forget what they're doing here and they will begin to ask for a king, a, another king other than God. And they will be called to repentance again and then again and again and the same with you. Because loved ones, you'll forget this. I'll forget this. And when we do, and you hear the call of repentance, repent and remember. Like, don't get tired of repenting over and over. Never get tired of repenting over and over. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be defeated of repenting again for the thing you repented of earlier today, for the thing you repented of yesterday, for the thing you repented of last week, last year. And remember, remember your God is a God of grace. To be a Christian is to live a life of repentance. At the, at the end of the Bible, Jesus says to the church, if you have abandoned the love you had at first, then remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that you would help us remember our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, We pray that you would draw our thoughts throughout the day, today and tomorrow, the next day, Lord. Bring us back to a remembrance of our Lord and Savior, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he promises he will do. Father, we pray that for ourselves. We pray that for one another here. We we, we pray it uh, for those who are out there, that they would come to know uh, this Lord Uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, the only Savior. We pray this in Christ's name.